This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only begotten name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful you have given us your word. And as the psalmist said, that it is in your light that we see light. As you illuminate our thinking by what you have revealed in your word, that in turn illuminates the details of our lives. It illuminates the thoughts, the actions, the motivations in our own lives and uh, the events around us so that we can understand to some degree the perp- your purpose and plan uh, as things continue to uh, be out of control, it seems, in our crazy world. But we can trust you knowing that they are not truly out of your control and that you are bringing things together for your purposes. And so, Father, we come together to study your word, to constantly be refreshed and to be encouraged and reminded of all of these truths. Now, Father, as we continue to study about the church today, we pray that you would help us to understand these things in the scriptures. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue what I began last week, which is just sort of a a basic overview of what the Bible teaches about the church. We ask the question, what is the church? There's been a lot of confusion, a lot of erroneous teaching about the church down through the uh, history of Christianity ever since the uh, early church. In fact, there was confusion that developed because of the intrusion of false teachers uh, within the churches. And Satan has always sought to disrupt uh, the mission of the church and the purpose of the church and the understanding of the church simply because the church is comprised, the, the true church, which is all those who have trusted in Christ as Savior, I'm not talking about any particular local church, but that true church is the body of Christ, the representative, the ambassador of Christ in this age, corporately and individually. And yet when we look at what the church has become over the centuries due to apostasy, then uh, we see how Satan has been quite victorious in many, many different ways. So we are addressing this question of defining the church, uh, what God's purpose is for the church, what God's purpose is in terms of our involvement in a 
local church and uh, thinking through all of these particular issues. So this morning, I want to look at the next part of understanding what the church is, and that is the distinction between Israel and the church. Now, part of what we need to be thinking about, and a lot of people need to be thinking about, not just for you, you have made some of the right choices here, but there are people you know, friends you have, family members you have, and you need to understand uh, what the Bible teaches about the church, that you can help them understand the answer to the question, what does, uh, what, what does God say about the kind of church that we should be involved with? When God evaluates a church, what are the points of that evaluation? Now, ultimately, if I were going to take the time, I would go to the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. I'm not going to do that. I've done that in the past. I'm not going to do that now. But in each of those seven letters, they're basically spiritual evaluation reports on each of those congregations. And so there are things that they are doing well. There are things that they are not doing well. And as you read through those, you could make a list, a list of different qualities that are mentioned, that are praised, or that are, are that the church is um, critiqued upon because of their failures in certain areas. And that gives you a guideline as to the kinds of things that God looks for in a church. And it's interesting. It doesn't have anything to do with the programs you have in church. It doesn't have anything to do with having a youth group or a singles group or a young marriage group or a choir or many of the things that churches emphasize and that people look for when they go to church. And I have been... uh aware for many, many years that most people choose where they go to church on reasons that have nothing to do with what the Bible says. And that is sad because in most places they don't ever teach any of these particular, any of these particular principles. So that's part of what we're looking at. And what we're teach, what I'm teaching this morning is part of what should be taught at a church where that is uh, that you should attend, and that is the distinction between Israel and the church. So just as a sort of brief overview by way of summary of our passage, where we're going with this is to understand what the church is as the body of Christ, and that has to do with uh, the church invisible, as some put it, the church universal, as some put it. That is, that it is comprised of all believers alive and those who are in heaven that comprise the body of Christ. But in terms of the local church, and that's the focus of verses 11 through 16, we see that Christ has given gifts, gifted people technically in the passage, uh, in order to, as verse 12 says, equip the saints. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers, and I've highlighted the three fours, that word four in the passage. These are the purposes 
for these gifts, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until, this is the goal that these gifted people should have toward a congregation. Until we all come to the unity of the faith. So if you're a, because as we'll talk about in coming weeks, apostles and prophets were temporary gifts. If you are have the gift of evangelist, if you have the gift of pastor-teacher, then the purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And the ultimate goal is expressed as the unity of faith, as the knowledge of the Son of God, with the ultimate goal of spiritual maturity uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That further purpose, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But in contrast, speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things who is the head. So it's all about spiritual growth. That is fundamental to the ministry of the local church, is the spiritual growth of every believer from childhood uh, to maturity. Now, in Ephesians 1.22, we were introduced to this concept of the church, where we're told that he, God the Father, this is one of the many blessings mentioned in Ephesians 1, put all things under his feet, that is Christ at the time of the ascension, and gave him to be head, that is the authority of all things to the church. That's in the context of Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, which focused on his ascension and session. So because of that, there is the, the birth of the church. So that tells us right away that according to this passage, you cannot have the church prior to the session of Christ. Okay? Now that's very important because we live in a world today, a theological world, where many people think that of the Old Testament time that Israel was the church in the Old Testament. But this tells us, reinforces that the church did not begin until after the ascension and session. So now Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is positionally over all of the angelic creatures. He is the head of the church, and the church is further defined in many passages as his body. And our passage has the purpose of informing us about how we as members of his body are to mature. So we began to look at the topic of what the Bible teaches about the church. First point in terms of review is the use of the term church in the New Testament. It's used in a sense of the universal or invisible church, which includes all church-age believers alive or with the Lord. So we're all members of that body of Christ. The singular form of the word church in the Greek because it's usually translated as a plural in the English because to make more sense. But in many passages, you'll discover where it talks about the churches of Syria, the churches of Judea, it's church, singular, in the original. So many times the singular word church refers to a group of churches, whether in a city or a region 
or in several regions. And one of the points there is there have been those over the course of Christianity who have said there should only be one true church in each location. And I have known some uh, that some of you may have known who have slipped into that error that there should only be one true church per location. But when you look at the singular, it indicates that it's often used of not only cities, plural cities, and plural regions. Third, the singular word church also refers to a local assembly of believers, like West Houston Bible Church. It's a local assembly of believers, a local expression of the body of Christ. I'm not sure why this slide duplicated. It's one of those mornings. So then we ask the question, when did the church begin? An important question, and it's clear from uh, what we saw in in Ephesians 1.20 that it had to be after the ascension of Christ. Jesus in Matthew 16.18 had previously, just a couple of verses earlier, asked the disciples, well, who do men say that I am? And some said, said, and their reply was, some say Elijah, some say a prophet, some say John the Baptist. And then Jesus turned to Peter and said, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus' reply is, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. There's three interpretations of that. The one that I think is most accurate is Jesus is talking about himself, that the, that as he has been just then identified by Peter. He's not building it on that statement. He's not building it on Peter's faith. He's building the church on the reality that he is God, the son of the living God emphasizes his deity and that throughout the Old Testament, God is identified as the rock. In some verses, it even says God, uh, God is referred to as the rock, and the writer says our rock is greater than your rock. And so rock was a metaphor for the immovable, unshakable, powerful God. And Acts, but the, but the future tense of the phrase, I will build my church, tells us that it wasn't present at that time. He will build it in the future. The second thing it tells us is that it is his church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's his church because he is the head. By Acts 5.11, we're told that fear came upon all the church. That's the first time the word ecclesia is used in the book of Acts. So somewhere between Matthew uh, 16 and Acts 5.11, the church began. And the only thing that makes that clear is Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples. And that had to do with the baptism by the Holy Spirit when he descended. Now, when he descended, there were three things that happened. They were baptized by the Spirit, that is, they are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It was something that was non-experiential. They didn't feel anything. 
It's not indicated by how you feel. It's not indicated by any external sight. It is a judicial activity that takes place in heaven, and you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is the sign of the church. And it was future for John the Baptist in Matthew 3.11, and in Acts 1.5, Jesus says that it's yet future, but it happens then in Acts 2. And uh, in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descends, not only were they instantly, the disciples, instantly baptized by the Spirit, but they are indwelt by the Spirit, and it's the beginning of the Ephesians 5.18 being filled by the Spirit. All of that happened instantaneously at that, at that time. In Acts 8, when Peter and John take the gospel, or the gospel has been taken by Philip to the Samaritans, and then he calls upon John and Peter to come, and they uh, lay hands on them, then they receive the Holy Spirit, indicating that just as the event in Acts 2 was under the authority of the apostles, so the event in Samaria is under the authority of the apostles, indicating that it's not a separate church, it is the same unified body of Christ, And then in Acts 10, Peter took the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius and his household. And when he reports to the apostles in Acts 11, he says, As I began to speak, that is to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, that's my emphasis there, as upon us at the beginning, indicating that Jews in Jerusalem, Samaritans in Samaria, and Gentiles all entered the body of Christ under the authority of the apostles, indicating the unity of the church, that there's no racial distinction, no ethnic distinction anymore, no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore, all are one in Christ. Now, another thing I thought about, I talked last week, and I'm expanding on a little bit this morning, is that we're not to confuse the church with the kingdom. This is so common today. You go to many churches, the choruses that they sing, the contemporary choruses they sing, often talk about Christ the King and Christ as the, and, and the kingdom. And often in the messages, what are you doing for the kingdom is a dominant theme. Yeah, we should question that. What kingdom are they talking about? The word kingdom is used in the scripture in several different ways. The first is that it's the universal rule of God over all his creation. And in that sense, it speaks of God, not the Son, not the Holy Spirit, but just God, the triune God, as the king of all, uh, all creation. In a second sense, it is used by Jews and by those in Israel who are under the Mosaic Law, which is a theocratic document. Theocracy is a word that means the rule of God. And so technically the king in Israel is God. And so when you read about worshiping the king in the Psalms, it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about God who is the head of the Jewish theocracy. And so we have to distinguish that sense of the kingdom, and it's talking about what kind of kingdom when it's mentioned in the Old Testament. It's talking about a literal, geophysical, political 
kingdom centered in Jerusalem with a descendant of David on the throne. That's the Old Testament kingdom, the kingdom of First it was Israel, the United Kingdom, then there's the split, and you have the divided kingdom, but it's focusing in the time of the divided kingdom on the southern kingdom of Judah, which was ruled by a descendant of David. And all of that portrays and is a type of the future kingdom that God promised, that when the Messiah returns then he will establish a kingdom. Although in the Old Testament it wasn't talking about a return, they just had two views. They had passages that talked about a suffering Messiah and passages that talked about a ruling Messiah. And by the time you get to the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders are are ignoring the suffering Messiah passages and they're emphasizing the ruling passages because they want to have God overthrow the power of Rome so that they can get away from, from, from being ruled by these unclean Gentiles. But Jesus didn't come. He came offering the kingdom, which was the kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament, but they rejected him as the king. That was the unpardonable sin. It was a corporate sin. It was a sin of the nation as exemplified by their leaders. And so it was an unforgivable sin, not in the sense of their salvation, but in the sense of they had now blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, and as a result, God was going to judge the nation, and it was inevitable that they would be destroyed uh, by 70 A.D. And that was the unforgivable sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It didn't have to do with their individual salvation. It had to do with God's... Uh, promise. He had given them enough revelation and enough information, and the person of Christ is the uh, revealer of the Trinity. And what happens? They reject him. And so God, in turn, says he will punish them. That culminates in the death of Christ, the payment for our sins. And so the reign of Messiah as the king and the kingdom itself is postponed until Christ returns at the second coming. He is, as we studied in those passages related to the session of Christ, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is on the Father's throne, not on his throne. He is awaiting a time when he can ask the Father for the kingdom. We compared passages in Psalm 110, 1 through 4, with Psalm 2, and it is during the seven-year tribulation uh, that comes in the future, that Christ will be taking the kingdom. But until then, his position is he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the high priest for the church, the body of Christ. He is the head. He's the authority of the body of Christ. And he is our advocate representing us before the, before the Father. That all has to do with his relationship to the church, and that is not in relation to Israel. So we are not to confuse the church with Israel. This is a serious problem that has infected Christianity like a virus since the uh, 3rd century A.D. And so we need to see what is involved here. Ephesians 3, 2 through 6, 
is an important passage for us to understand. I just want to emphasize a couple of things here. Paul talks about his commission as a apostle, as the grace of God which was given to him. That is the bestowal of his uh, commission as an apostle. And he says that as a result of that, he was given revelation of a mystery. Now, that's not like a whodunit, not like reading an Agatha Christie book or a Rex Stout book or something like that, trying to figure out who did it. It is about unrevealed truth. The mystery, that word had that concept of previously unrevealed truth. Nobody knew what was going to happen because nobody knew ahead of time that Israel was going to reject the Messiah and that God in turn would discipline Israel and there would have to be a different body of Christ on the earth, a different people of God, let's say, on the earth following that until he restores Israel. And so that's what this mystery is. It is further defined in verse 4 and 5. He says, by which, that is by this mystery, you may understand my knowledge, or by which, that is what he had written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known. See, that's very clear. In other ages, this doctrine of the church, the reality of the church, the coming of the church was not made known was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. So now this is revealed, but it was never known before. So something totally new is happening in this dispensation, in this age. And that is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, fellow heirs with who? With the Jews in the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This was what was made clear earlier in Ephesians 2:14 through 18. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made both one, contextually that both Jew and Gentile now one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation, which was the law. He abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, Ordinances, so there's there's now peace between Jew and Gentile, so as to create in himself, that was the purpose, so in himself he's creating one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might then reconcile them, Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body, we're that one body, the body of Christ, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, that is, Gentiles, and to those who were near, that is, Jews. For through him we both have, that's both Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. So what's our conclusion? The conclusion is that thus the church is not Israel. It's something totally new that was given birth to on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. But this is an idea that has infected a broad stream of Christianity, and it goes today by the name of replacement theology. 
that today the church has replaced Israel. We're the new Israel. We're the spiritual Israel. So where did we get this idea that Israel is the church of the Old Testament and the church is spiritual Israel in the present age? Where does that come from? Well, we have to understand a little history. And the history goes back to the beginning of the of the third century, the early 200s, okay? And one of the most remarkable theologians, you can be remarkable and be bad, and you can be remarkable and be good. And he's mostly, I think, a negative influence, but in some ways he did have a positive contribution. And his name was Origen of Alexandria. And so... He introduces to Christianity an allegorical or spiritual interpretation. Now, what is an allegorical or spiritual interpretation? Because we do have one example in Galatians where, God, where Paul uses uh, the, the um, Sarah and Hagar, uh, the wife and concubine of Abraham, as an allegory. But in the way he's using it, an allegory doesn't deny or reject the literal fact that there was a literal Abraham and he was married to Sarah and he had a concubine named Hagar. So in the way he's using the word allegory, it is simply using a literal, actual, historical event with real people to portray a biblical uh, principle. That's not what Origen is calling an allegory. For him, an allegory is that, that he had three levels of meaning, and he destroys the actual literal historical meaning. It's irrelevant. It's just the spiritual truth that matters, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The reason it's important to recognize that origin is from Alexandria is because of the philosophical, intellectual climate of Alexandria, which is in no- the north of Egypt, on the coast of the Mediterranean. It was the home of a Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo, often referred to as Philo of Alexandria, and he was born in 20 B.C., so he's roughly 20 years older than Jesus. So if Jesus died when he was roughly around 35 or 36, then um, Philo was about 50, and he lived to 50. So he lives about 70 years. And he's important to us because he develops a whole new way of interpretation. And that is an allegorical interpretation. Philo was responsible for developing an allegorical method of interpretation, which is dominant in Alexandria. It's how they interpreted literature. It's how they interpreted philosophy. And it grew out of the fact that he was um, influenced by Plato, and by Platonism. And you see, you have to understand just a little bit about uh, Platonism. He was thoroughly educated in Greek philosophy. He studied Aristotle and Plato and Pythagoras. And he's um, deeply influenced by both Platonism and Stoicism. And in Platonism, the material world, the physical world, is inherently evil and corrupt. 
and a body is inherently evil and corrupt. Now, this is going to show up later in Gnosticism because they reject a full, a literal incarnation of God because God can't come and, and, and take on a human physical material body because by definition that's evil and that would destroy God. So these ideas were very prevalent all through the, all through the ancient world. And that creates this dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. And so this then becomes applied in terms of interpretation so that the actual literal words are not important. They're like physical things. It's corrupt. It's only there because it's teaching us a spiritual principle. And so the spiritual principle is not tied to anything objective in the literal statement, okay? So anybody can just sort of make it up as they go along, and they make it mean things that have nothing to do with the literal meaning of the of the verse. And you probably got confused by this when you were taking uh, poetry in some form, either American poetry or British poetry when you were in high school, and the teacher would tell you what this uh, poem meant, and you're like, how in the world did you get from that to what you just said? It doesn't make any sense. Well, that, that's because a lot of times they're just using an allegorical method of interpretation, and this is common in certain branches of Christianity. And so what happens under Origen's influence, because Origen from Alexandria has been schooled in this hermeneutical, uh, this hermeneutic of allegory influenced by Philo, and so he applies that as a Christian interpreting the Bible. And so for him, the literal meaning of Israel as the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was reinterpreted to mean the spiritual church of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, rather. So Israel in the Old Testament is the church in the Old Testament. And because that word ecclesia is used to describe just the assembly or congregation of Israel, uh, that gave them what appeared to be a justification for that. But the word ecclesia is never used in the relationship that uh, to the body of Christ or anything like that. And what we just read in Ephesians 3 tells us that none of that had anything to do with the church, the body of Christ. But that's how, how Origen introduces this. And another way in which this had significance was that the literal meaning in Revelation 20, which uses the number 1,000 to describe the future reign of Jesus on the earth, is explained away as just another idealized number, so that the whole idea of the kingdom was spiritualized and the distinction of the church and uniqueness of the church was explained away. Uh, you may or may not want to take time to turn to Revelation 20, but I want to read through this just briefly so that we can grasp what happens there. In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus has returned in 19. You've had the campaign of Armageddon that the Antichrist and the false, false prophet has been judged and sent to the lake of fire, and Satan and the demons are bound in the abyss. And this is what we read. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's the first use. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years, that's the second use, were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. That happened in the tribulation period. Uh, And who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for what? A thousand years. That's the third time. Fifth, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That's our fourth use. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God, of Christ, and shall reign with him. I, I skipped one. There are six uses of a thousand years. Oh, yeah, it's in verse 7. Uh, shall reign with him a thousand years. That's number five. And then verse seven. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will re- be released from his prison. So that's the sixth use. Six times a thousand years. That's emphasizing something, something literal, like a thousand years. But Origen comes along and says, oh, that doesn't really mean a thousand years. That's just sort of an idealized term, and this is really talking about what's happening in this dispensation. Well, you say, well, that refers to, to the kingdom of Christ. That's, that's Jewish. And he says, no, 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 the Jews are the church in the Old Testament. The church is Israel in the New Testament. So we're in, we're in this thousand years. This is an ideal period because, because we have the Holy Spirit. That was his argument. It's known as amillennialism. Millennial refers to the term a thousand years, milli being the Latin word for a thousand. The prefix a comes from Greek, so it's a, somebody bastardized the word and took a Greek prefix and a Latin base and turned it into a new word. And it's, uh, it means no millennium, no literal thousand years. So this idea that uh, Origen introduces is allegorical interpretation. Uh, the Old Testament, the church is spiritual Israel. The New Testament, uh, uh, the church is spiritual Israel. The Old Testament, there, I think I said that wrong. The Old Testament, Israel is the spiritual church. And so now, because we're spiritual Israel, we're, we have a kingdom. And so this is it. We're living in the kingdom now. And as Tommy usually says, then I must be living in a millennial ghetto. Because <laughs> my life doesn't seem all that utopic. So this is where this idea of a present form of the kingdom comes from. But if you look at the scriptures, you clearly see that the kingdom was promised to Israel as a literal geopolitical kingdom. But that's not what we have today. We don't have Jesus literally on the throne of David ruling from Jerusalem, which is what the Old Testament uh, predicted. 
So this allegorical interpretation truly destroys the basic concept of what the church is as a unique and distinct people of God in this age that are the body of Christ that have unique blessings and unique assets and a unique relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in something of a review, this is what happens when uh, the uniqueness of the church was explained away. Israel and the church were allegorized and spiritualized so that Israel was the church of God of the Old Testament, and the church became spiritual Israel. Second, the thousand-year number, which is used six times in Revelation 20, was spiritualized to mean simply an ideal period of time, not a literal 1,000 years. Third, the future kingdom of Christ on the earth was spiritualized to be equivalent to the church. Third, this became known as amillennialism, no literal 1,000 years. Fifth, thus the distinction between God's plan for the church and God's plan for Israel was removed. That's why you have so many confused Christians who are trying to go back to the law in order to get their morality and to get their spiritual life. Our spiritual life isn't based on the law. It isn't based on the Old Testament. It is based on what's revealed in the New Testament in relation to our walk by the Spirit. Sixth, the result did not necessitate Christian anti-Semitism, but it laid the theological foundation and provided a rationalization and justification for Christian anti-Semitism, which began to develop at this particular time. And seventh, the ultimate fruit of this allegorical root was the policy of Nazi Germany to exterminate every Jew on planet Earth. This week, on Thursday, January 27th, we're going to observe internationally uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. I'll speak a little bit more about this Tuesday night so you can be aware of this more when Thursday comes. And that is was uh, voted on uh, several years ago as a way to commemorate the victims of the Holocaust, which included not only the murder of some six million Jews, but also included the murder of uh, numerous Christians, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, various political enemies of the Nazis and the Roma, otherwise known as the Gypsies, as well as many others. So that's Thursday. And so that's why uh, it's important to understand why there's this distinction between Israel and church, and, and you can't be sucked into the allegorical interpretation of replacement theology, which is what you find in most Presbyterian churches, what you find in most Lutheran churches, what you find in most Roman all of Roman Catholicism, even though the Pope comes out and says, we don't, we reject replacement theology. What, what he's really saying is, We've got to take a political stand to reject what happened in the Holocaust, but we really do believe that the church replaced Israel, so we really do believe in replacement theology, but he can't say that, but they do. So what's happening today? 
Now, here I put a little chart up on the screen because this is important. Recent survey, and this is the trends of this survey have been going on for a number of years. The purple represents uh, the number of evangelical, and this was this survey is done with a fairly, not the most conservative definition of evangelical, but a fairly conservative one. And 51% of evangelicals believe Jews are still God's chosen people. That's really down from a couple of decades ago. That would have been closer to 80%. And the reason it's falling is because we have a generation under the age of 45 to 50 that have, that are either not going to church or they're going to some mega church that doesn't teach them anything about the Old Testament. And so they don't understand God's purpose and plan for Israel and they haven't grown to love, uh, Israel and the Jews because they're still God's chosen people. We are doing exactly what happened in Britain a hundred years ago. The generation of Balfour, the generation of Lloyd George that produced the Balfour Declaration, everything, those guys were in their 60s and 70s when the Balfour Declaration was produced. They grew up listening to the Bible at their mother's knee. By the time you get into the 20s, when Britain is turning against Israel and becoming pro-Arab, the men that are in charge were men who grew up listening to Darby. I'm not Darby. Uh, listen to Darwin. Listen to evolution. Uh, not learning about um, about the Jewish people because in the latter part of the 19th century, England was beginning to really apostatize, and so you had this shift in the world in the worldview and the support for Israel, which is why they were so so horrible. The British were so horrible during the time of the British Mandate before the uh, before the Jewish uh, War of Independence. So all of this is tied together. We're in that same stage now as our in our country. We are shifting. If this trend continues, where churches don't talk about the truth about Israel, then we're going to turn anti-Semitic, and we're going to see the same thing happen to us that happened uh, to England. Uh, a couple other things I wanted to point out about that chart. Let me go back to it. Um, ha- just over half believe that Ju- the Jewish people are still God's chosen people. Uh, this is more common among older evangelicals. Approximately 60% of those 70 and older, but it drops down to 44% among those 40 and younger. It's more common among Caucasian non-Hispanic evangelicals than among others. 54% of Caucasian evangelicals to 44% non-Caucasian evangelicals. People who read the Bible weekly are, are, are more than weekly, are also more likely to still see the Jews as God's chosen people than are less frequent Bible readers, 56% to 40%. If only half of evangelicals see the Jews as God's chosen people today, what do the other half believe? One in five, that's the group in the darker color up in the upper left, one in five, 19% hold to replacement theology. Oh, excuse me, only one in five are simply not sure what they believe and have taken no position on the subject. The most common alternative view is 17%, which is the orange at the bottom, they believe that the church replaced Israel. That number is growing. 
that wasn't that way 20, 30 years ago. So in summary, from all of this, we see that it's vital to understand that God has a distinct plan for the church that is distinct from Israel. It's a distinctive gospel. It's not the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. That was related to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not the gospel of the Old Testament. That is, God will send a Messiah in the future. It is the gospel that Christ has come, the Messiah has come, and died on the cross for our sins. There's a distinct plan, a distinct spiritual life as well. So what we see is that God's plan for Israel includes the future fulfillment of the prediction from Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which God revealed to the prophet Daniel. In Daniel 9, 25, God says through Gabriel, the angel, says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that was in 444 B.C., Artaxerxes, uh, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Can you add that together? It's 69 weeks. Okay, so there's 69 weeks, and each week is a period of seven years. So that comes out to 483 years. Uh, from the command to go back and rebuild the fortifications until Messiah the Prince, 69 weeks are 483 years or 173,880 days. Then it says the Messiah is cut off. says after this, the Messiah is cut off. So there's a pause. It's after the end of the 69th week, but it's before the 70th week begins. So there's a pause. What happens in the meantime is the Messiah is killed, Jerusalem is destroyed, and the temple is burned. We don't know when the 70th week begins, but it will be after the rapture because the 70th week is for who? It's for you and your people, Daniel. That's in verse 26, which I didn't put on the slide. Being cut off is described separately in Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's what happens at the crucifixion. That's when Messiah is cut off. And Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, we read, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin... That's the Lamb of God on the cross is an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And in verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied for his knowledge of my right, uh, his, by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's pretty clear. Then the third point is that this pause has now lasted almost 2,000 years since Jesus the Lamb was crucified and died for our sins on the cross. At the end of the pause, there will be the last seven years. Daniel 9.27 says, Then, 
after he's been cut off, after the people are destroyed, the city uh, is destroyed, and the temple's destroyed, then he shall, that's the coming, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring it into sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So this charts it. From March the 5th, 444 B.C., when Artaxerxes commissioned Nehemiah to take, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the fortifications, the walls in Jerusalem, until March 30th, A.D. 33, the Sunday before the crucifixion, is seven weeks plus 62 weeks. That's the 69 weeks. After this, that is when you have the Messiah cut off and the destruction of the temple. And then at some time in the future, you have the 70th week, which is then divided into two, three-and-a-half-year uh, periods. So all of this gives us that timeline. The first 69 weeks are for Israel, and the last week is for Israel, not the church. The church is raptured out before that 70th week begins because its purpose is for Israel. And the purpose is to purify, to judge those rebels against the Lord to purify the earth and prepare it for the second coming of Christ in the establishment of his kingdom. So in terms of our takeaway, four things. We, the church, are not Israel. We're not the kingdom. The church has a separate purpose and destiny than the saved Jews of other dispensations. We, that is the church, comprised of Jewish believers and Gentile believers together in this dispensation, will rule in the kingdom with Christ. We will return with him. We're raptured, which ends the church age. We go to be with the Lord in heaven during the 70th week of Daniel, and then the Lord returns at the end of that seven-year period to establish his kingdom. Second, the kingdom is established only after dominion is taken away from the Antichrist. That's very clear in Daniel 7. We studied that already. It's only after God takes dominion away from the Antichrist, who's called the little horn in Daniel 7, or he's the first beast of Revelation 12. Daniel 7, 12 to 13, after describing these beasts and all representing the kingdoms of man, As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. That happens in the tribulation. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I was watching in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. comes after that dominion is taken from the Antichrist. And that's made even more clear in Daniel 7, 26 to 27, that the court shall be seated. That's described in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion. That is the dominion of the little horn. That happens through the course of the tribulation, finalized at the second coming. Then... 
after the dominion is taken away from the Antichrist, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He doesn't get the kingdom until it's taken away from the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation. So we're not in the kingdom in any way, shape, or form. And that is one of the most confusing errors of most evangelicals today. And if we're in a kingdom, this this breaks down the distinction between Israel and the church, and it doesn't necessitate anti-Semitism, but it really is the theological foundation for anti-Semitism. So finally, thus we must understand who we are as church-age believers in distinction from Israel. We're not in the kingdom now. We're the church, the body of Christ. It's better. We're the church. The kingdom is not called the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. This is fabulous. This is our identity. It, it, It relates to everything that we have. And we need to learn this. That's why we're studying Ephesians, to learn this and to so that we can grow to maturity. And then we come back with the Lord and to the degree of our uh, maturity and everything else is determined our capacity for ruling and reigning with Christ, and that determines what our positions are in the kingdom. But it all looks forward to the kingdom. And we secure our future in the kingdom by trusting in Christ as our Savior. That's the gospel. It's not the gospel of the kingdom because the gospel of the kingdom was what Jesus, what John the Baptist preached, what the disciples preached, what Jesus preached in the first half of his reign. It is the gospel of the church age. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus on these important doctrines related to the church understanding that there was no church in the Old Testament, that the church is brought into existence on the day of Pentecost, that we are not the kingdom, that we are not Israel, but we are a distinct people comprised of Jew and Gentile, all of those who trust in Christ as Savior, identified and united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, one in him. Father, we pray that those who are listening would come to understand the gospel of this church age, that Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty, and all that is necessary is for us to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and thus we have everlasting life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand, put together these important truths, that we may be able to communicate those to Uh, people around us, people we know who ask some of these questions, that it may be clear to them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.